Hello, and welcome to my podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Todd Weimer, whom I work with at Avangrove High School. You students know him as the other honors senior teacher, and he also teaches AP literature. And today, we are lucky enough to get a ton of interesting trivia on him from him about the Dark Ages and how that transitioned into the Renaissance. And I can't wait for you to hear our fun conversation. All right, so we're talking Dark Ages, yes. Middle Ages, so, Renaissance. And then the Renaissance. All the cool stuff from yes. centuries ago. Mm-hmm. How long have you been teaching this? Me? Yeah. Well, my name is Todd Weimer. Oh, yeah. Introduce. I'm yeah. really bad with introductions. So here's Todd Weimer, my esteemed colleague. No, it's fine. The uh, professor of the department. We're both, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm a podcast Padawan personally, so I'm a little <clears throat> not myself right now, I'll say. Uh, so I have been teaching English here at Avangrove High School. I just finished my 14th year. Have you been teaching this subject matter the whole time? Yes actually because I started teaching college no yeah college prep and academic level seniors back then uh, which meant a little something different than it does now back then the college prep class was essentially what what we call honors now and academic is what we call college prep now but yeah um, back then it was taught the same levels um, even though they had different names I yeah like so there used to be I mean, I guess this is like a little boring for a podcast, but there used to be AP Lit and College Prep, and then they decided that there was a sort of a, I don't know, market for kids who didn't want the rigor of AP, but they wanted something a little bit more rigorous than College Prep. And so since I taught AP Lit and I taught College Prep 12, they sort of smooshed those together to make it into the... Um, honors 12. And now class. we teach Honors 12. And here it is, teaching Honors 12. Yes. Still. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for talking to me about it today. No sweat. I got to say, though, uh, the thing that I'm a little nervous about <laughs> is the vocal fillers. Because, you you know, when we first started this, I don't know if you're aware of it, but you said, um. And I say, I um, say um, maniacally. And I also clear my throat a lot, which I don't know if it's a like a nervous tick or just because I've always been asthmatic and weird. <laughs> but, but I don't know if asthma has anything Me neither. So why do I <clears throat> clear my throat so much? You know, my friend calls it old man noises. Um, I, there I said, um, so I, uh, you do, you do some flipped classroom stuff. Do you I do. do. I did with this unit this year, I ended up having to do like a screencast to explain some of the historical stuff, which was cool, but was really just kind of me chalking and talking via video because I was out with Jax's ACL tear. My dog tore his ACL. So I was out that week. So I did it that way. Um, So I don't know if it was quite as interesting as I wanted it to be, but I think that this stuff has um, some cool tidbits of history and like we were talking about previously it's refreshing to be able to go chronologically from the middle ages the dark ages into the renaissance because they're so kind of binary opposite right just gonna say that i just wanted to preface this whole thing 
with so you did your flip classroom stuff okay. did you listen back to yourself after did you watch the yes, video back I do watch the video back would you notice about that like like that you you know because I know when a person is talking you you assume that you're coming across one way and then when you have to sit there and listen to yourself yeah. talking and you're like good god I said I feel like I sound like a muppet First of all, which my own ears don't seem to hear that, but I'm listening to audio recording. You mean like the sound of your voice? Yeah. I have gotten more used to the sound of my voice. The more I have done screencasts and audio recordings, the more I've gotten used to it. But initially, the first couple I did, I thought I sounded horrible. So that's my concern is that I always feel like I come across in these things. If I do feel like I'm riffing and I can kind of mentally go down paths and all that other stuff naturally i'm going to say um a lot so the reason that, that the reason i keep bringing this up is because oh, um fillers yes well yeah so when i was out this year uh for paternity leave i came up with a couple screencasts and a couple sort of you know recordings of me staring at the camera on my mac at home and i one time sort of made this wise acre comment to my class that said uh, I'm not used to doing this, and so please don't tally the amount of times that I say um. <laughs> and my students tallied in a, I don't know, it was a 20-minute long video or whatever it was, but they tallied 67 ums. Oh, no. So ever since then. You've been really aware of it. Right. So I may be a little bit sound awkward because I'm trying not to say not um to say I don't think I say um. I mean, I know I say um, but it's not my big thing that my kids notice but my kids have brought to my attention that every video I start I either start and they started taking bets on it I either start it with all right so or I say okay so today like I never it's always one of those two ways to begin go to so did you know that before your kids no so when I told them like they had other videos coming up for whatever it was we were doing, they were like, let's bet on whether she starts it with all right or okay. And I didn't know I did it, but I still do it and I can't help myself. That's a sign that they're listening, right? Right. If they're tallying, true. I mean, so I, I just have to share these two anecdotes. This You're doing a class on storytelling, right? So yeah. I just have to, yeah, yeah. So some of the best vocal fillers that I had in college, I had this one professor, I'm not going to name names, but he was an adjunct computer science professor who was called at the last minute to teach this class three hours once a week not a single computer in sight and the dude had no teaching experience whatsoever he wore monochromatic sweatsuits to class he carried all his papers in a bowling bag and to fill the three hour long very awkward very quiet class he would punctuate every sentence with uh 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 as such <laughs> he ended every sentence with uh 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 as such and it was a little bit was difficult. it always those three us three us <laughs> and as such and as he did it you know i'm looking at the gray tufts of hair sticking out from underneath his shirt and just thinking this is some of the worst three hours in college i've ever spent there was one other guy that i absolutely adored and i just want to talk about him really quickly because we're going to be talking about some of the stuff that I learned in his class and that was Dr. John Ward who <laughs> why was that so aggressive because he had this thing where he would sound like he was starting to trail off and almost 
couldn't, he would be sort of zoning out in this intellectual space. He would be kind of staring off into space, and then he would wake himself up by almost shouting the point that he was trying to make. <laughs> so he'd be talking about Odysseus and the ritualistic cleansing of the wounds before battle in ancient Greece. Uh, incidentally, and he would basically <laughs> shout something like that, and we would all start that. Oh my God, geez, he came back from Wardville, you know. Oh so, so I'm gonna try not to do that. But yeah, I have had students tally stuff that I say. Two years ago, they told me that I said laborious too much. Yeah, but so, that's a good word. Yeah, but if you say it daily, a couple mm. times per class period, <laughs> you know, um, it this gets to be it. much. Okay, sorry, you tried to segue Steam. five minutes ago. Yeah, but that's Maybe the I've point of podcasting. We're just going to see where it takes us. No, your- um, and I, like, I know a lot of, not a lot of, but many English teachers and some of our colleagues don't focus on the history the way that you and I do, especially in this course. Yeah. But I think knowing the history and having the, the book situated it, within it yeah. makes it so much more interesting it, because then we continuity. can... We can focus on where it's going, where it's going, where it came from, and like mm. what it meant to those people, and like what it means to us as people. Like I it makes love, it more human. Yeah, definitely, the coherence I think is also something that you get in college courses that you don't typically get in high school courses. Is I, like we don't. So okay, so fourteen years ago, the senior curriculum was a survey. You know, we start with the beginning of the English language with Beowulf, and then by the end of the year, they get to the Victorian era. And almost never get to contemporary stuff. So I, you know, what you and I do is now we intersperse modern texts because for a long time, kids would be like, "How come we don't read any novels?" And it's, well, <laughs> there, you know, there were no novels until the 1700s, and back then, fictitious, uh, fic, you know, works of fiction that were novels were seen as trash until I don't know, probably the era of Jane Austen. I mean, we could argue about that, I guess, but yeah. Um, but yeah, seeing the continuity and seeing where it starts and where it goes through kind of the main texts, like the, you know, big Western canonical texts. Um, I don't know, it's, it's inspiring. And I have to say that in, instead of the idea, you might think that, well, gee, that sounds complacent teaching the same type of thing year after year, but it's, you know, to somebody who's curious, every year you get to delve a little bit deeper into it and you get to pick and choose the stuff from each era that the kids are going to like and, you know, the stuff that, that they find interesting. So you know to sort of whittle away, um, I don't know, the, the rest of it, I guess. So now I don't spend a whole a ton of time in the Canterbury Tales, but we do, you know, like what, what they sort of need to know to get right. out of it for why it's so important, why Chaucer's buried in a poet's corner. And right, and why, like, if you hear Geoffrey Chaucer or if you watch a knight's tale and you're like oh there's this Geoffrey Chaucer character and like what did he what is who is he I'm supposed to know who that is I just think it brings more relevance and I like Canterbury Tales too and like some of the things we do because like you said it's not necessarily complacent like if I get tired of certain tales I can mix it up or on YouTube there's like a million like videos of various tales so like there's different ways for us to like show them what it what it is and talk about what it meant um so you chalking and talking through the middle ages what was your favorite part of it and what do you think the kids reacted to 
um, with that. With the history? Yeah. They like, with the Middle Ages, they like the the knights and the jousting and the stuff I Courtly think the, the King Arthur stuff of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, they like forget about the Black Plague like being kind of yeah. that part. Like to them that's a completely separate era and I think that they forget like not that there were social classes but there were such disparities of social classes that I think it's hard for them to connect all of them living in the same place yeah which is why i like canterbury tales because like you had your knights but you also had these like you had the royalty you had the working people like it was crazy and then you have the occasional woman who people like sort of give the time of day to and they're just used to thinking of the females of the middle ages as those women watching the jousts like and the knights giving them their flower, yeah. like winning for them, like the damsel in distress. I'm gonna kind wear of your deal. scarf, milady. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you play the black plague game in your class? In your class? No, I don't know the black plague game. So, if, you know, a third of the population died. So, mm-hmm. I guess this is a little morbid. And I, kids, <laughs> well, it was the dark age. Right. We just in order to get them to understand what that looks like. <clears throat> you know, I, uh, we do one third of the class has to quote die by putting their heads down. How do you <laughs> just pick like, who gets the plague? I mean, I'll choose somebody who's been sick recently, and I'll oh, say, really? like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you make so, it okay. realistic. Yeah, huh? okay. You put your head down. Two, three. You put your head down. Two, three. You put your head down. And then the kids that were still alive, I say, look around. You know, like because those people died, there is a role that you can fill. You know, you were a pissant surf. And now you can go make pottery because the person who made pottery in your town is dead. And so that's kind of what led to the end of the Dark Ages, weirdly, was um, when people emerged from uh, the Black Plague. But just, you know, you read about something like that in the textbook. Oh, one-third of Europe died. Or, you know, one-third of some towns, it was half, you know. But that's the world that these people were living in, and so... For them to have such a fatalistic view of the world makes sense, um, you know, when you when you think that is the context that, oh, you know, one third of the people that I know have died as a result of this plague. So that's one of the things that I like to at least start with, you know, when we're doing this. I really like that game. I'm going to play that next year. Again, probably not the best for social and emotional <laughs> learning, but it's... But it's real. That's what it was like. Well, right, and what, it provides realism to that. What would that? What would happen in this world if we did that? Um, so the, yeah, so the knights and stuff. I like. Uh, I got my hands in this book a couple years ago from my predecessor, Kara Serpico, who was our p- former department chair. May she rest in peace. She passed away uh, in 2010. Anyway, she gave me this book, Great Tales. Well, pardon me. Um, this was one of the books that she left behind. Uh, and it was really thoroughly annotated, great tales from English history. So, you know, I might take like a paragraph snippet of our textbook and then read up on the Battle of Hastings or read up on how people felt that right before the Battle of Hastings happened, people thought the world was going to end because, quote, a hairy star was streaking through the atmosphere. What and does that mean? It was Haley's Comet. Oh, oh, oh. So, like, you, well, you're not a product of the 1980s, but when <laughs> I was a kid, it was, you know, everything stopped. Whatever year that was, 84 maybe? But Haley's Comet comes around once every 80 years. So they're like, if you see Haley's Comet, it's, it's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Uh, but it happened in 1066, and people 
thought that you know it was this prophecy and then sure enough not not long not long after that you know the french came over and in the span of one day you know the whole course of our language changed uh, so that's a really cool starting place one other anecdote from this era that i love to tell just because kids like the sort of juicy stuff um is it the etymology of kind of like the queen mother curse in the english language happened uh during the middle ages supposedly okay um so, all right so two things related to the queen mother of all curse words in the english language one of them is supposedly it is a an acronym for fornication under command of king which have you ever seen braveheart Maybe. Oh, got it. Yeah. Well, I was spelling that out in my head. Yeah. Um, I have seen Braveheart. So if, so I mean, this this happens in Braveheart. They they uh, use the rite of prima nocta, which was if you are a nobleman, uh, if people get married on your land, you, uh, since they're sort of your property, you are allowed to sleep with the wife before her husband gets to sleep with her. Oh. So that you could kind of... That's where that word comes from? Some, some people think so. It's not... Fornication under, under command, command of king. king. So some p- people think that. Interesting. Um, well, right. But think... Uh, that's also brought up in 1984. I don't know if you've ever brought up 1984, uh, if you've ever taught that. But they mentioned factory owners as late as the early 1900s could do this with their employees. Whoa. And you're... Yeah, so stuff like that. I mean, it was a brutal, brutal world uh, these people were living in. But the idea that perhaps your child might be the child of a nobleman um, because you happen to live on his land, um, you know, for someone like growing up in America where we believe in class mobility, just to to fathom that kind of worldview would be devastating. One other thing about, like, sort of a cuss uh, is the where the middle finger came from. Do you know where the middle finger came from? I do not. So this is a neat uh, thing that happened during the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Agincourt. I'm sorry if I'm not, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but I only took one we'll French We'll just say class. it really fast. <laughs> yeah, Agincourt. <laughs> so I guess the Brits were really outnumbered. Um, well, you're an athlete. Yes. Okay. Did So how many kids in your school played soccer when you were a kid? Like just in general? Ballpark of all the, like percentage. Oh, man. I don't know, probably like 60%. Like, everybody plays soccer when they're a little kid. Okay. Well, but you're not, like, learning soccer so that you can at one point go and kick balls at your enemies. Right, no. I but, am not. So during the Middle Ages, <laughs> they would close down village greens on Sundays. They outlawed, um, this is in England, this is, you know, the era of the longbow and stuff. They w- they outlawed, I don't know how, how, how you could regulate this, but they outlawed... Um, you know gambling and other sports and you had they had archery competitions on Sundays and everyone participated every kid had to practice their archery skills because as soon as they were old enough they'd go across the channel to France and then they'd be flinging their arrows <laughs> so at, they'd like have them practice yes for military reasons right yeah so it became so that's why you know Robin Hood is this you know the the sort of figure like the I, I say to my students that the New England Patriot type of character to American history is kind of like the human character from the Canterbury Tales to British history. That that you know woodsman wearing the you know the baldric, the green thing with the hat and the feather and the arrows and stuff. So 
the Battle of Agincourt, the Brits were totally outnumbered, and in order to kind of get into their heads, the Frenchmen uh, said, "When you know, <laughs> when we beat you, we will cut off the most important part of the male body." <laughs> um, and so apparently, the way that they did it, I like. Again, this is the dorky type of thing you do when you teach this year after year. Is I saw sort of a schematic of the battlefield, and they somehow funneled the French forces into a choke point um, that was, it was like uh, they were going down a hill, and the British U-men were up on a hill. They t so the... So the Brits got, somehow got the French to come into a choke point, which they were headed down into a ravine, I guess, and they were basically just picking them off sh like like shooting fish in a barrel. So in order to, they, they ended up being, they were really outnumbered. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but they were significantly outnumbered. Um, and all the Frenchmen who survived and were prisoners of war and everything, the Brits, in order to kind of brag about winning the battle, waved their, you know, essentially the, the finger that they used to pluck the U, um, to pluck the, you know, the, the string of their um, U tree or whatever. So that's apparently how, like, the middle finger came to be because they, oh. you know, they use that. Um, right. But in England, the middle finger is actually two fingers. Like, it's sort of like an, an inverted peace sign because that's how many fingers you need to pull back, uh, you know, to, I did know that out. those, like, are cultural, like, the yeah. middle finger right. and, like, the okay sign in some part of the world, like, doing, like, A-OK -okay with your, like, index finger and thumb together That's with your other... Snoop Dogg does to Yeah, but that, that sign is offensive in, like, other cultures, so it's interesting that, like, the middle finger and, like, where that comes from yeah. and how it's different... Yeah, so if we're over there and they give us, like, in, in England, they might give us a peace sign and it's not really a peace sign, it's... Right. No, it means it's like... It's offensive. Yeah, it's like, hey, I can pluck this uh, string and kill you with an arrow. Like, that. I guess that's what it means to a British So person. if you go to England, don't give the peace sign. Right, the backwards Unknowingly, peace sign. Unknowingly. Yes. Um, or you will offend someone, yeah. thanks to the, the human and the Middle Ages. So right? stuff like Middle that. Middle Ages? Yeah, yeah, right. So that is not a learning target. It's not an objective. <laughs> but, you know, I think those little stories about history... Instead of like, hey, what's the big picture of the Hundred Years' War? Fine. I mean, I'm not going to say who cares, but... But that's not necessarily as interesting. And like, I liked that you called it juicy earlier because these anecdotes are what draw my students in. Like, that's why we like... And that's why we like it. Stuff. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I was drawn to this time because I get to learn about all these like cool little tidbits. And then you get to share it with your kids. Go, right. dude, guess what I learned about the middle finger? Yeah. The trivia is the fun part. They love that. Even though the trivia from our Dark Ages and the Renaissance is a little bit different. Um, so, actually, I do want to transition to that with our last few minutes here. Jeez. Oh, I know. It goes... Time flies. Time flies. Um, chalking and talking. Yeah. Well, what do you want to chalk and talk about with the Renaissance? Because we talk about mm -hmm. how it's refreshing going chronologically. Because, obviously, we could go in any order we kind of want to. But oh, we choose sure. to go chronologically because, A, it gives us a trajectory. And, B... I do like the refreshing aspect going from Middle Ages, dark, yeah. let's kill off a third of our classmates with a bubonic plague uh -huh. game, into this time of enlightenment and prosperity. So what? Uh, do you have a cool anecdote about the Renaissance? 
Um, I mean, nothing about nothing as juicy as that, I guess. But <laughs> well, you know, it's not think, as dark, and we like the dark. I think we just it's it's really inspiring to to read about the Renaissance and read about you know an entire you know an entire society of of Western Europe was bettering itself. Um, and as educators, the whole idea that we had the Dark Ages in which education was done through the church, and if people are reading. They're reading so that they can understand the Bible, you know, and if if they went, I mean, entertainment during the Middle Ages, one of the things people would do is go see passion plays, which is for people who can't read the Bible, they would act out scenes in the Bible in a church. And you'd probably, instead of paying admission like you do with a movie theater, you're paying tithes to the church to put on these plays. So it's all that. But then during the Renaissance, it's more about instead of this like dominant idea that I need my life here doesn't matter if I die during the bubonic plague it doesn't matter because what does matter is my station in heaven in the afterlife and so during the renaissance it's more about well we can be concerned with the afterlife but why don't we ask ourselves ask ourselves what makes a good life here and now and that's just really inspiring for us as teachers so I'd like to hear about uh, and share about you know humanism and these you know, basically this is what we do. I mean, I'm just talking about hey, well, I read this great tales from English history, and so I'm going to convey the interesting stuff to my students. And so humanists would they were the ones who learned how to decode ancient Greek. They were the ones who could get their hands on these texts, um, and then share what they learned with people who weren't able to read and that's that's essentially what teachers do so um really really inspiring that um and i like that when um let's see i'm trying to think um thomas more with his utopia i like that uh the word utopia means uh no like you is un and topia is land so it means there's it's impossible for a utopia to exist, but the fact that people during this era were were at least thinking about it and thinking about okay what could we do with this world to make it more utopian um, is huge, you know, for for culture all over the place. Right, and the kids like the utopia tidbits because dystopias are so trendy right now. What with like The Handmaid's Tale and then. They've read a bunch of dystopias in their Every other classes, like 19, novel now. yeah, 1984, yeah. but also with The Hunger Games and Divergent. Like, that genre Maze is something Runner. that they currently read. So to know that, like, the idea of the, the opposite, the utopia, which inevitably fails in the dystopian fiction they're reading, came from this time period is like, oh, that's cool. Like, I didn't know that it came from there. And you like all the... Um, intrigue with the Tudor family. I right? do. That's I do. Your thing? That is my thing. You like teaching that this year? Did they get it? Do the kids? Um, they like. They've surprisingly less and less kids are familiar with Henry the Eighth. As like I go from year to year, but I think they do that in a history class. I don't know, but I think it's fascinating. So they like hearing about how crazy like his wives, like the story of his wives. They don't necessarily get into as much as I do everything else but they do think it's crazy that he had that many wives do you think we wait do you think we divorced beheaded died uh-huh. divorced something beheaded, survived. survived okay divorced yes. beheaded died yes divorced beheaded survived yes 
I teach them the rhyme. Yes. And there were three Catherines, but they all spelled their name differently. And then there were two Anne's, and then there was a Jane. And Jane was the one, the third one that died. Because I, f- I feel like it's karma. Like, you D- finally yeah. got someone right. that gives you a son yeah. and that you love, and then she dies. Like, that's what you get. I think it's, you know, when you read about the Tudors, it's one of history's great moments of poetic justice and irony that the dude, you know, like, there was a divide with the rest of Europe because the guy was horny. <laughs> and he needed a son. Right. You know, he liked... And I mean, have you seen the, the not very good show I've adaptation? I've seen some of it. I wanted so much more from it. Right. I mean, I like, um, you know, the chick who plays Marjorie Tyrell in Game of Thrones. Oh, Natalie... Natalie Dormer. Dormer, yes. Yeah. You know, her crooked little face. She yeah. plays a great Anne Boleyn, but... Um, <laughs> crooked face. <laughs> uh, but I think it's, it's this great story that we had this guy who was so obsessed with getting a son and then he ends up having and this is after you know unit after unit of uh okay girls i'm sorry you're not being represented in anglo-saxon era because women back then were serving wenches and anglo-saxon men felt it was their duty to kind of you know pounce on a woman and it was their right to do so and then we hear about women being at the bottom of the pecking order uh during the middle ages and then when we come out of all this and when, um, you know, like during the era of Shakespeare in which England, um, in which like the English language kind of brought us into the language that we speak today, uh, this was ushered in by a woman who was a strong patron of the arts. So Henry's, you know, uh, I guess shame that he had this daughter, young Elizabeth, turned out to be one of the greatest rulers. And if not for Queen Elizabeth, we might be doing this podcast right now in Espanol. You know right. what I mean? Because we, like, England, America, English, we would have been speaking Spanish. Yeah? See, si, yeah. See. Si. <laughs> well, like the Spanish Armada. Right. I mean, She it's, defeated them. Well, right. You look at England and you're, you know, hey, kids, look, there's a map of England. Why is it important that there was no other fleet on the planet that was capable of coming after them? They're like, because it's an island? You, you, yes, you know. So the fact that no one else had a fleet that was capable of going after them meant that all these arts were able to thrive and they were able to kind of focus on developing themselves culturally instead of developing their military, you know. So that's really cool. It's like a game of civilization in which... Have you ever played Civilization? Yes. Okay. It's like a game of civilization in which you can hit pause for anyone invading you for like 12 turns you know you get to develop all your cultural centers I know that was such a yeah but I feel like nobody else at the time was really able to do that you know what I mean so like even today they're not no one's really able to strictly focus on that um well we don't need to get into politics but let's just say that I wonder what would happen if um I don't know like none of none of our computers are on but we spend more than half of our annual federal budget on military. Right. And you wonder what would happen if we'd be spending that money on schools and hospitals <laughs> and municipal projects right. and stuff. You know? How much growth we could have? Yeah. To focus on that. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Costa Rica or Switzerland or any place that doesn't really have to worry about you know, military... Um, expenditures, you get to see how utopian those societies could be. So that's really 
I don't know, uh, thought-provoking if you go to those places. Um, not to not to get all Bernie on you, but <laughs> I do, th- you know, I mean, if, no, if every sense. kid was able to go to college for free, like... Um, and, like, um, you can think about in the sense that, like, not the college for free thing, but there was a lot of learning happening with Elizabeth in charge, but just, like, it puts it into context, like, what you could do if, like, you had someone in charge who was a patron of the arts. Yeah. And then you're getting, um, one of the things, I, I'm sorry, I know we've gone over time here a little bit. Well, we'll, we'll wrap it up okay. soon. Okay, we'll wrap it up soon. Just yeah. one of the things I gotta say, uh, after years teaching this stuff, um, one of the things that was seen as, like, the foundation of the Renaissance was when Michelangelo was there when they, uh, exhumed the sculpture Lacone and his two sons I'm sorry if I mispronounced that Laocone and his two sons uh, so this is a sculpture that was buried Hellenistic period I'm sorry I don't know when that is 50 50 mm. I don't know it was yeah. <laughs> um, but it was in Rome when one of the times in which Rome was getting sacked they took a bunch of their sculptures and buried them so that they wouldn't get destroyed and then they pulled it out of the ground and Michelangelo saw this statue and said, this is not a biblical figure, and yet he is ripped. He, this is a beautiful form, and it showed that humans were capable of... I mean, it kind of illustrated symbolically that uh, the Romans, at least, thought artistically that humans were capable of striving to, to perfection. So he used that sculpture uh, as a basis of Adam in the creation of Adam at the... Um, that the you know the ceiling of the sixteenth chapel. <laughs> I don't know where the other fifteen went. Do you get? Yeah, do you get chapel. it? Um, the, so uh. so when I got to go to the Sistine Chapel a couple years ago, uh, a couple things stood out. First of all, I almost cried when I, I I may have teared up a little bit when I saw Lacone and his two sons. Well, knowing super overwhelming. Knowing the significance yeah. of that was ridiculous. And then when you go into the sixteenth chapel, it's after you've been just like ushered through a dense crowd full of angsty tourists um and people are like put your cameras away no talking it's a very strange and not very um reverent scene uh but the thing that the thing that was kind of upsetting to me and i'm sorry again if i'm getting like like a little bit political but there were so many pictures throughout rome and throughout italy of john the Baptist's head on a platter and on the front doors of St. Peter's Basilica, there are frescoes of um, people being skinned alive who are not believers. So to go from that sort of, you know, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't pay your tithes and deal with all the stuff that's rolling downhill, to go from that to this era in which people were artistically minded and felt like they were capable of self-expression and felt like there was some room to grow um, class-wise is really, really inspiring. But I also, I like, I want to point out, I think it's more meaningful for you to have gone and seen that because you were familiar with the history and the people of the time because of things like this, which is why I like to teach it. Like, I like making these connections and teaching about the ideologies of the time and the culture because then when you travel and you understand it like you have that moment of knowing like the difference between that where I feel like a lot of people don't well I mean 
yeah, the, the whole time, yeah, I, I learn this stuff so that I can teach my students, is that's what humanism is. Right. But, but obviously, it's made my own life more enriching. Yeah, uh, I would agree. So I'll not necessarily end, but I want to just throw this question at you, is I don't Ooh. think this stuff has a utilitarian purpose. You know, I think some of our uh, educational, you know, curriculum writing and all this other stuff is kind of going away from knowledge for the sake of knowledge and content and is more about, you know, skills and just pure utilitarian, let's throw all this history out the window and let's focus only on the types of skills that are needed to, you know, be a successful individual in the 21st century. So I want to ask you, what do you think the purpose is of teaching this the historical stuff along with the literature. And I realized that I might have said stuff too many times. So if kids want to go for extra credit, tally tally the the stuff. Yeah. Um, I like to teach it because even though, and I always tell like my future engineers in the class, like I get (laughs) that you feel like you don't need to read and write and that this class is a waste or whatever, but you will need to communicate. You're totally throwing shade on kids next year who might be like, she's talking about me. <laughs> well, I threw the shade to their face this year. I'll do it again year after year. Because <laughs> engineers. I, I tell people them. People get well, 200K a year. No, it's for full disclosure, I believe in engineers and I know that they do good work. Well, your sister's Because my sister is an engineer. Right. But I feel like I still teach it. I will continue to teach it every year because I think that there's value in literature and like reading stories and understanding where we come from as humans like and when we look in the future I'm really into AI and artificial like and where that's going and I think that knowing this stuff like yes it's knowledge for the sake of knowledge and I get that I could look all this up on the internet but the anecdotes and the storytelling pieces of it I think are what make us human like that we have stories and robots don't so I think doing the history and the literature together is what makes it meaningful and I think it's important for everyone to know some of that cultural stuff which is why I like to do it do you have a different no no reason no I agree I think it's enriching to know where we were and where we're headed and I also this is kind of a strange thing to consider but um let's say the middle ages last from 10 6 you know as far as our senior textbook goes uh, last from 1066 until four, the 1400s, right? And that is encapsulated in the span of 16 pages. And they take these broad cultural, like these broad strokes, and they put it, you know, they put it in the span of 16 pages. And so I ask our students, okay, what would people say about our era if there you know, if there were 16 pages written about the millennial generation, what would be the broad cultural strokes and the accomplishments and the historical events that would define our lifetime? And what would people say about our ideology? Uh, And I think that gives students pause to recognize that they are a part of this stream of time and not as far removed from it as they think, you know? Um, I mean, in the grand scheme of things. So. Yeah, one day we'll be our own 16 pages in a textbook. Oh, God. I bet if you did a transcript of this, it'd be 16 Although pages. Although textbooks probably won't oh, even exist I then. I know. I know. You're going to come in, take the microchip, and right. you know, here's your senior textbook via microchip that we're yeah, going to drill into your head. This is our section. So. And, yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, it's nice to be a windbag. Like, yeah. actually be asked to be a windbag, because yes. usually it's kind of like... 
Hey, shut up, Todd. You know. No, so. very interesting. Thanks for doing this. No, thank you. Thanks for having me.